Well, aren't we thankful for the ministry of this man, I think, who introduced himself as a, as a children's Sunday school teacher uh, from Waukesha, Wisconsin. Pastor Walt Chantry, thank you for your fellowship with us during these days. Thank you for bringing Joey along with you. Thank you for ministering the word of God to us. And we ask you now to come and once more show us the Lord Jesus Christ. If you open your Bible again to Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin there. Matthew chapter 5. It was after eight benedictions of the truly blessed people. And after those two exhortations, let your light so shine before men and you are the salt of the earth. After those things, our Lord Jesus Christ suddenly pivoted in this Sermon on the Mount. And he brings our attention in verses 17 and following to two things that are joined together in his statement. The first is the purpose for which he came into the world. The reason he appeared on planet Earth, the mission that he was pursuing here. And the second is the significance of the law. And the prophets and those two things are joined together in his mind and in his teaching. Follow as I read verses. I'm going to begin at verse 16 and read through verse 20. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. Good works before others. Not hiding them, letting men see them so that they will glorify your father in heaven. Do not think. All right, here's a commandment. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to cancel them. I did not come to eliminate them. Either the prophecies of the Old Testament or the commandments that were given from Sinai and in other contexts in the Old Testament. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you. Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will in no means pass from the law till it is, till all is fulfilled. A lot of people saying that that law has gone away. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. If there is anyone who does not do one of the least of these commandments and teach others to do so, he will be least in the kingdom of God. But those who do them and teach others to do them will be great in the kingdom of God. I, I can't read over those that section anymore without remembering uh, the resurgence of the Puritans in the 1950s and 1960s and uh, almost simultaneously Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on the Sermon on the Mount 
two volumes was printed here in America. And Banner of Truth printed Thomas Watson on the Ten Commandments. And this was the beginning of a movement to return to this literature and to the confessions of long ago. And yet almost instantaneously, there came what was called New Covenant Baptists. Uh, And they were teaching that you don't have to keep some of these laws or really pay much attention to any of them. And they themselves did not follow the commandments. And I had thought that maybe there would be a little era of peace before that kind of controversy arose, but it wasn't so. At the center of Jesus' concern in coming to the earth was the commandments of the law. As a matter of fact, it was the center point of history. When for the first time, a true human being would perfectly keep the law of God. And he has been the only one to do so. And he came to keep this law and to see that his people kept it as well and commanded that in his kingdom, the laws would not pass away. So these two principles are entwined together. His personal behavior on earth spectacularly fulfills the law. And the design of Jesus for the future, as long as the kingdom stands, this law will not pass away. The design of Jesus' incarnation has reference to the law in two ways. First of all, his personal behavior on earth was a positive obedience, an active obedience of the commandments. And, of course, we focus a great deal in our hymns and in in our churches, on his bearing the curse of the law, in suffering at Gethsemane and on Calvary. And we call that his passive fulfillment of the law, not in that he was doing nothing. Usually when you think a person is passive, not doing anything. It's not saying he was inactive. The word passive comes from the same root as the word passion. We talk about the passion of Jesus Christ, that focus of suffering that came upon him at the end of his life. That was his passion. The same root is passive. That was his passive obedience of the law. Suffering for every sin that was broken by God's elect. And he suffered the due consequence of those sins. So there was active obedience on the part of Christ. And there was passive obedience on the part of Christ. A sinless life. And the sinless life of Jesus was also vicarious, just as his suffering on the cross was vicarious. That was, he suffered for us, but he lived for us. And he... Of course, the one who suffered for us would have to be a lamb without spot and without blemish. So he could not have been the lamb of God that took away the sin of the world if he had not lived the sinless life. But even in living the sinless life, that was vicarious on our behalf. For not only must he wipe away the sins that we have committed, But he must provide a perfect obedience to the law when we come before God in judgment. This whole mediatorial work is wrapped up in the law, both the active obedience 
and the passive obedience. And his people are partakers with him of all his triumphant achievements in both ways. His promise that the smallest part of the law will not pass away till heaven and earth pass away, till every part is fulfilled, has been kept. And therefore, the law will have great importance in the kingdom as a direction to their people, to his people as to how they should be sanctified. I want to uh, read a bit from our confession of faith on this whole matter of Jesus keeping the law, just so you realize how much your confession has to say about the subject. And some of it may be surprising to you. Maybe you've never heard a sermon who, that has emphasized certain parts of it. In the chapter on justification, most people and most sermons that I've heard on justification is that Christ died for the sins of his people on the cross. And by believing in that passive obedience, you will be justified. But listen to what our confession says more fully than that. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth. Not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but imputing Christ's active obedience. Did you ever think of that being so central in the doctrine of justification? Imputing the active obedience of Christ to us. Active, it, it emphasizes even further, imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law is imputed to us. And passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness. What a beautiful statement. But it includes the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ, both being necessary for our justification and our trust in the Savior brings an imputation of his righteousness to us. And we stand before God as if we have perfectly kept the law. And as if every little shred of sin has been atoned for in the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read a bit further. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. And then, of course, after justification and adoption, the confession of faith goes into sanctification. They who are united to Christ effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue by his word and spirit dwelling in them, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified and they are more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness without which. Now it's talking about sanctification 
without which no man shall see the Lord. This sanctification throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, there abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome, and so the saints grow in grace perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after in heavenly life in evangelical obedience to all the command all the commands which Christ as head and king in his word doth prescribe to them. What a great statement our confession makes and it emphasizes the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. All of the emphases are made because there are false teachers. There are false teachers who deceive the people. False teachers who suggest that there is no necessity for them to have sanctification if they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and they are forgiven for their sins because of his suffering on the cross and that alone. But our confession brings up the text that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. Jesus after this particular teaching in Matthew chapter 5, goes on to give three case laws to contrast God's law with the Pharisees' law. And uh, in verses 21 to 26, he discusses the sixth commandment in verses 27 to 32, the seventh commandment, verses 33 to 37, the third and ninth commandments in conjunction. In verses 38 to 42, the rules of retaliation when you've been offended. And in 43 to 47, the love of neighbor, one's neighbor. It is then very interesting that in verse 48 of chapter 5, our Lord Jesus sums up by telling you what your objective as a Christian must be. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Do not live like the false teachers and those who misrepresent the law, but aim at perfection in your life, not excusing yourself from active righteousness because Jesus Christ has been righteous for you. There is then this summary of Jesus' active obedience and of his passive obedience in the scriptures. He was the first and only human to live according to the law of God. Without spot, without one misstep. And he did that for us. If we are the chosen of God. And if the spirit has led us to repentance. That's what Romans 5.19 means when it says, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. 
So we look to the obedience of Christ, the active and passive righteousness of Christ and obedience of Christ. In John 8 and verse 29, Jesus said, He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. For I always do those things that please him. Isn't that a great statement of his righteousness? I always do those things that please him. And this life of uninterrupted obedience, this unbroken, perfect righteousness, active in Christ, suffered by Christ, is the foundation of our justification and our sanctification. Man is justified or he is not justified. Man's justification does not increase. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are justified. And when you are justified, there need be no increase to that justification. But sanctification is a different matter. When we say that a Christian has been sanctified... We mean that a definitive break with sin has taken place. There is what the theologians call definitive sanctification. He becomes a new man. And in every part of his being, he is being renewed into the likeness of Christ. And he is not what he once was. There is this definitive matter that has happened when he is born again. And yet, as we read in the confession, those who have been sanctified definitively grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. More and more sin is mortified in them. More and more holiness, in fact, is acquired in their life. And that is called not definitive sanctification, but progressive sanctification. But sanctification is brought about at union with Jesus Christ, union in his death and resurrection, dying with him to sin rising to newness of life and righteousness in Him. Isn't baptism a beautiful image of all of that union with Christ? When you immerse, it is. (laughs) You have died unto sin and you have risen unto a life of righteousness in our Lord Jesus Christ. A few verses from Romans chapter 6 that I want to read to you. And it's in the context of this holiness which the Lord intends to bring to every one of His people. What shall we say then? Since our sins are all forgiven. Since we are justified on the basis of Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience, and not for anything in us, shall we continue to sin that more grace will abound toward us? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer therein? Or do you not know? That as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. 
As Christ was raised from the dead, we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. And then these following verses, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And then just one other verse. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. What an interesting phrase from Paul, to be a slave of righteousness. Definitive sanctification, progressive sanctification, and this matter of sanctification being very important to the Christian life. Now, what is the standard by which we should be sanctified? How do we know what holiness is? What is the reflection of God? We can say God is holy, so we want to be like God. That's a nice thought, but where is the summary of God's holiness? It's in his moral law. And therefore, as we strive to sanctify ourselves and to live unto righteousness, we have the guide of the law. The law was so important to bring about a conviction of sin that made us flee to Christ for mercy. But the law continues as a guide to our lives. J.N. Darby, the father of dispensationalism, mocks the idea that Gentiles were ever under the law. No Gentile was ever under the law. Why does he have to be sanctified according to the law now? It was only given to the Jews. Dispensational thinking. But obviously, J.N. Darby never carefully read Romans 2 and verse 12 and following. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law for not the hearer of the law, hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles, here's Darby's Gentiles, when the Gentiles do not have the law, never read it, never saw it, never heard it. When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. 
and show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Yes, the law applies to the Gentile who never read Moses' account of the law because that very law is written on his heart. You can go to the most depraved criminals in our prisons and find out what they know about the law by saying, how do you think you should be treated now? I don't want anybody to lie about me. I want you to tell me the truth. Don't make a fool of me. I don't want anybody to assault my wife or my daughters or my sons. And don't you mess with my life and don't take my things. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. Even though they may claim that they didn't know that they were breaking the law, they knew they were breaking the law because they have a conscience. They're human beings. And God put the conscience in there to shout to them that they are breaking the law. Again, those who are dispensationalists are not happy that we pay a great deal of attention to the law. But do you know, brethren, that one of the great failures of the Church of Christ in America in, in this last 50 years or more has been that the church has not taught the law to their own people. And our society does not know right and wrong as clearly as they did even when I was a child, I grew up in a city area. Jews and Catholics and Protestants, of course, the Jews knew the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. And the Catholics knew them because they were catechized. I don't think they are being so well catechized today. And the Protestants knew them because they were catechized. The Lutherans, the Presbyterians, they all had their catechisms. Our society does not have that law impressed upon their minds as before. It's written on their hearts and they are still responsible to it. But the whole foundation of a society... The social order in which we live demands that people live according to God's law. Or there will be misery in society. And it is not the government or the politicians that are going to teach the commandments. It must be the churches. And I know those of you who do catechize the children in your church are absolutely amazed at three and four and five year olds who know the commandments by heart and can put to shame many a person on the truths of Scripture. That will do great good to our society, to our nation, that you teach these things. But it's become a matter of conflict, hasn't it? It's become a matter of conflict, and it grieves me that there is all of this talk about the reformed, the new reformed movement that has decided to ignore certain laws or all of the laws of God and not to make a point of them. I've mentioned already before, they are not reformed in their theology and their teaching and their preaching. If they are ignoring the law and passing over it on purpose. But there are many ways in which 
they misrepresent themselves. You remember, again, one of the sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Incidentally, he said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Isn't it wonderful when crowds gather? Don't you want to be where the great majority of people are pressing in? Well, maybe it's that broad way that leads to destruction. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few that find it. And Jesus said, beware of false teachers who come to you. Everyone knows this as wolves coming in sheep's clothing. Even those who draw cartoons come back to the Sermon on the Mount. And picture a wolf in sheep's clothing. Do we want to say to our people that these are fellow reformed who do not have the same theology? Who have misunderstood many things and find it. Why did I it kind of amazes me that it's such a popular thing to call yourself reformed. Whether you believe what the Reformed believe or not, I, I wasn't aware that we had earned that kind of a reputation. And yet, at the same time that they want that term, we are Reformed, we are the new Calvinists. How did Calvin get that reputation? Wolves will come in toward your people in sheep's clothing. Or those with deficient theologies will come after your people in Calvin's robe and little hat. Do you want to help to put Calvin's robe on those who are not going to teach what you are teaching? And actually, it's it's amazing that ever since. Calvin lived, there have been people who have said that they are Calvinists. And among the new Calvinists, there are many who are arguing now, even as they argued just after Calvin's death. And I, I'm speaking of those in the new reform movement who do not understand the difference between Calvinism and Amaraldianism. Jonathan Edwards was deeply involved in the Great Awakening. He was the one that brought Whitfield to New England. And he himself preached at large gatherings and saw many profess conversions. Although he was disappointed somewhat after some of their meetings that they had. And subsequent to the Great Awakening, Edwards was dismissed from his church. You remember the history and how sad it makes us to think of that dispute. He was called to direct an Indian mission. And one of the oddities of history is that when he was called to direct an Indian mission, one of the first things he did was write a deeply philosophical work, a treatise on the freedom of the will, the human will. And in the treatise on man's will, Edward used, Edwards used the exact words of the theologian Amarok from France. Amarok taught 
that man has a natural ability, but a moral inability. Edwards used those exact same words. I don't think it could have been a, uh, a chance thing. I think Edwards had to be reading the old theology of the school of Selmer. In France, the theological school of Selmer was deeply influenced, influenced by the humanistic philosophy of Ramus, R-A-M-U-S. Humanistic philosophy, a seminary influenced by that. And it was uh, a Scot named John Cameron who went to Selmer and taught this philosophy. And one of his students was Amarant. And he was, he was so taken with Cameron, uh, young men will know this who are in seminary, and you, if you've been a practical theology course and, and men stand up to preach, you can almost guess who they've been listening to. They're imitating someone or other. Um, and Amarok even imitated John Cameron. He was so taken with his teacher. Cameron, Cameron was only there for a couple of years, but Amarok became a leading faculty member at Selmer. And... He developed over the years a theology that goes like this. God designed to save all men. And Christ was the substitute for all men and every man. But Christ's sacrifice is not effectual to salvation unless a man accepts it. When God offers the grace. So man's will is the key of it all. And the purposes of God will not be fulfilled unless man exercises his will. Much of this theological scheme was developed because Amarat and others at the school of Selmer were facing criticism because they had been Calvinistic. And the secularists of the day objected to the doctrine of predestination. Is that a surprise? What will the average man on the street say if you talk about predestination? That doesn't sound fair to me. And they were saying to Amarat and the other theologians at Selmer, if you believe in predestination, what you're saying is that God created a vast number of men only to damn them. That doesn't sound like a loving God. And Amarat was responding to that by developing this idea that God intends to send, save every man and that Christ actually died for all men and every man. But... If he doesn't choose to accept the salvation, then it is his fault. And it does not come under the difficult matter of why men perish under the sovereignty of God. So the Amaraldians spoke of mediate imputation, which is not imputation at all, it's it's imputation if man accepts it. And uh, they spoke of hypothetical universalism or conditional universalism, conditioned upon whether men exercise their wills or not. And of course, they had this view that man has a natural ability to receive the gift of God, but a moral inability to receive the will of God. However, that mixed together, I never could understand it in reading them. And so we have Edwards using the very words of this school of thought. One of the features of the Amaraldians from the very beginning 
was their insistence that they were the only ones who understood Calvin. And they were the real Calvinists. So they were saying, we're Calvinists. And, you know, um, soon after we became acquainted with Calvinistic teaching, in the providence of God, I think I met three or four different Amaraldians. And they were still saying the same thing. We're the real Calvinists. You don't understand Calvin. And, of course, we have the same thing happening now with people who are saying we are Calvinists. And they are Amaraldians. And in the Second Great Awakening, you're probably aware that the students of Edwards moved openly in the direction of the Amaraldians, and they claimed that they got it from Edwards. And Edwards' own son said they got these teachings from Edwards. Teaching that God intended to save all men, that Christ died for you, but you must believe to receive it, and you have a free will capable of receiving the gift. And there was even the development amongst the followers of Edwards of a moral influence theory of the atonement. God has a wonderful plan for your life. If only you accept it. Isn't that where we are? Someone needs to get into the Yale uh, collection of Edwards and follow through on this whole thing of his connection with the Emeraldians so that we have a clearer way of going about this. But when there is the excitement and the general acceptance by people and multitudes who are turning in the direction of a group um, who claim to have the gospel straight, um, someone has to look on behalf of other people. Are they Calvinists? Or are they Emeraldians and anti-commandment people in Calvin's robes? And I think we need to be very careful of recommending some of this movement without knowing clearly. And the sheep that you have in your flock are precious sheep. And to be warned and to be saved, if at all possible, from false teachers. And the doctrines that we have labored to understand and have drawn out of the Scriptures in the stream of the 1689 Confession are so precious that we cannot throw them out the window for an exciting and massive movement. But if there is anything real in the movement, the people there need what God has graciously given us in our confession. And in our knowledge of the scriptures, not that we are the most wise in the world, in these fields, but we are following after great men, great men, whom God raised up and showed how to put together the great truths of the scripture. And if they mean so much to us, we do want to pass them on to our people. And protect our people from those who will say, oh, well, I'm a Calvinist. If they really are not. 
And that's all part of an association, isn't it? Of gathering strength from one another. And discussing where the dangers lie and where the hope of the future lies. And working together to protect our people from false teaching at the same time that we labor to give them what we have found to be the best things for our heart and our life. Our Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is the one that we should always look to. And though we look to him, we are so far short of him, aren't we? We've, we've spent these evenings in the Sermon on the Mount or in Matthew chapter 11 when he spoke to uh, the towns in which he did most of his works. And, uh, and it, it is um, blessed to read his sermons and we aspire to following after him and we're still far behind. But let's press on in the right vein and ask God to bless us as we do so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this association. We thank you for these churches that have been raised up 50 years ago. Very little of this work was available in the U.S. And we thank you, Lord, that you drew us into this fellowship. And we thank you for what we have seen of Christ and other men and women that we've fellowshiped here at these assemblies. But, oh God, you've put precious things in our hands. Help us to reserve them. Help us, especially if we are shepherds of the sheep, to protect the sheep. Lord, may our churches be free of those who would lead astray and grant that each of these ministers may be faithful to his flock. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.